Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. We're delighted that you all could be here uh, to listen in on a very, very interesting and perhaps controversial topic. I'm Jim Harper, Director of Information Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute, and I'm, I wouldn't be the ordinary person you'd expect to be to be dealing with an, an issue like the, the scope and magnitude of the terrorist threat. So I want to briefly describe how I came to the issue and then turn it over to the author of the book we're considering today and a, and a very distinguished commentator. I first came to this issue because uh, I have a, a, a problem, and that's that I read everything the Cato Institute puts out. And I read every word that's in, the, in Regulation Magazine, for example. And a couple of years ago, John Mueller wrote an article called A False Sense of Insecurity that was in Regulation that I found to be a fascinating, a fascinating new look at terror, terror as a strategy, terrorism, and at the scope and magnitude of the threat. In my role as a, an advisor to the Department of Homeland Security through the auspices of the uh, Data Integrity, uh, Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee, I've also had to look at this issue because one of the most important things you can do in considering Homeland Security programs is to put them in context. You must know uh, if we're going to give up some privacy for Homeland Security purposes, what what risk we're addressing and how well we're addressing it. Uh, we've heard in our committee from Governor Jim Gilmore, who will comment today, and I thought his words to our committee were extremely, extremely eloquent, and he has a real grasp of the importance of both addressing the terror risk directly and concretely and preserving our fundamental American values, which is so, so important, and the reason why we obviously defend against terrorism. So we have, a, I think, a great, a great pair of speakers today to discuss a great and very interesting book. So we'll have John Mueller first talk about his book, Overblown, and then Governor Gilmore will comment for about 10 minutes. Perhaps we'll have some conversation between the two. And then we'll turn it over to you for 10, 10 15 minutes or so of Q&A. John Mueller is the Woody Hayes Chair of, of National Security Studies at the Mershon Center and Professor of Political Science at The Ohio State University. His Ph.D. is in Political Science from UCLA, and he teaches the following subjects, which I find a very interesting melange, if you will. Foreign and Defense Policy, International Relations, Dance as an Art Form, Public Opinion, The War in Vietnam, Dance History and Film, The Choreography of Fred Astaire, Perspectives on War and Peace, Change in Post-Communist Countries, and Terror. Before Overblown, his most recent book is called The Remnants of War, and it won the Lepgold Prize in 2004 for the best book on international relations of that year. To comment on the book and, and John's uh, discussion today, is Governor Jim Gilmore. He served as governor of Virginia from 1998 to 2002. He is a former counterintelligence agent, so he has a great deal of knowledge in these areas, not only because of that, but because of his service as chairman of the Congressional Advisory Panel to assess domestic response capabilities for terrorism involving weapons of mass destruction. This was a national panel established by Congress to assess federal, state, and local government's capability to respond to the consequences of a terrorist attack. That commission came to be known as the Gilmore Commission, and for good reason, because of his expertise. Now he heads the National Council on Readiness and Preparedness, which, according to its website at ncorp.org, ncorp.org, is an organization 
that works to establish community-level programs and public-private partnerships that strengthen homeland security through education, training, and communication between citizens, businesses, governments, and responders, law enforcement, and medical professionals. Without further ado, let's turn it over to John Mueller to present his book, Overblown, How Politicians in the Terrorism Industry Inflate National Security Threats and Why We Believe Them. John Mueller. Okay, thank you very much, Jim. I'll try to suppress any tendency to break into a tap dance um, here. Uh, what I'd like to do, since I, my time is very limited and I want to try to summarize some of the major points of the book, is turn to uh, uh, some PowerPoint slides, which I think I can get out a fair amount of information over a short period of time. And basically what I'd like to argue is that terrorism is a threat, is a problem, is there are bad guys out there. But the scope of the threat, I think, has been substantially exaggerated, uh, and it's something basically we can live with, work with, and deal with. Uh, it's by no means an existential threat to the United States. Our survival is not at stake, uh, and uh, it's something basically we can work with. Uh, I basically want to make sort of four points. Uh, the first one is this. Um, seen in reasonable context, terrorism generally only has limited direct effects. Um, uh, it, it, particularly international terrorism. If you use basically the State Department figures and the way they, they have been calculating what uh, damage caused by international terrorists, it tends to be really quite limited. Obviously, the best number would be zero, but the total number of people killed each year is really remarkably small, a few hundred uh, throughout the whole world, uh, very few of them outside, obviously, of 2001 uh, being, uh, being, uh, being uh, Americans. Uh, one of my favorite quotes on this, however, how, uh, 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 on this is from Michael Moore, who was on 60 Minutes a few years ago, in which he said sort of in passing that the chances of any of us dying in a terrorist incident is very, very, very small, a fact which is overwhelmingly true. Bob Simon and his interviewer said, but no one in the world, no one sees the world like that. And in many respects, both statements are true. But just to give you some context here, uh, one of my friends, uh, an astronomer, has calculated uh, what's the worldwide chances of somebody in the world of being killed by an international terrorism over a lifetime, uh, over 80-year lifetime, assuming, incidentally, that there is an occasional, uh, every several years, there's another 9-11. And it comes out to be basically 1 in 80,000. Since he's an astronomer, he's also calculated the chances of being killed by a comet or asteroid over the lifetime of 80 years, and it comes out to be about the same. Uh, some people say, well, what if there's a whole bunch of 9-11s? They don't seem to be coming along very fast. But uh, let's take a re extreme case, which is the chances uh, – what are your chances of being killed if there were another terrorist attack like 9-11, a really horrible one, every five year, every three months for the next five years? Your chances of being killed as an American are about two-tenths, two-one-hundredths of one percent. Uh, nonetheless, basically what you have is a considerable amount of fear – uh, over this possibility, even though the, even the extreme case, the chances are very small. This is, this is a percentage of people who are worried or very worried about uh, being killed by a terrorist or somebody in their family or somewhat worried. And as you can see, it really hasn't changed very much since the blue, the blue vertical line there is 9-11. The, um, and it really hasn't changed very much. And at the bottom here are the percentage of people who think that a terrorist attack is very unlikely. And as you can see, that's very small and hasn't really gone up very much, despite the fact that this few percent has been consistently right for five years. 
Okay, so the basic point then is that it really, uh, under current circumstances at any rate, doesn't really do all that much damage. I don't want to spend a whole lot. The, the only way this could really change hugely uh, would be if uh, the uh, terrorists were able to get weapons of mass destruction. And I'd be happy to go. I know a lot of people are concerned about this for good reason, and I'd be happy to go into it more. I would recommend on this, by the way, uh, the Gilmore Commission report from 1999, which deals with these kinds of threats um, and generally indicates that it would be very difficult for terrorists basically to acquire these and put these together. Uh, nuclear weapons are extraordinarily difficult to, figure, to, to get the right material for, transport, get them in the right place. Biological weapons, uh, most of them are unlikely to kill very many people. It's very hard to control. The, the pathogens have to be spread as an aerosol. Many of them decay and so forth. No one has hardly ever used biological weapons in history, even though biology in a sophisticated science sense is by no means new. Uh, chemical weapons basically aren't weapons of mass destruction. In World War I, they accounted for seven-tenths of one percent of the battle deaths. Uh, it, uh, you can kill people with chemical weapons, but not massively. Uh, by and large. Um, you can also kill people, obviously, with bullets and ice picks. Uh, but a uh, weapon of mass destruction has to kill a lot of people in a short period of time with a relatively small number of weapons. Radiological weapons are sometimes considered weapons of mass destruction. They basically aren't. Uh, most people writing on it refer to them as uh, weapons of mass disruption. If a radiological weapon went off in some place, uh, what would happen would be that if you stay in that contaminated area for 40 or 50 years nonstop, your chances of getting cancer would increase by one one-hundredth of one percent or maybe, maybe somewhat higher. Um, anyway, I'd, like to go, I'd be happy to go back over that later if you want. Um, my second point, however, is that the costs of terrorism very often come from the fear and consequent reaction or overreaction uh, terrorism characteristically inspires. And let me quote Osama bin Laden on this. Um, the, uh, in terms of overreaction, he said, it is very easy for us to provoke and bait. All we have to do is wave a flag that says al-Qaeda on it, and the generals rush there. What we're trying to do is spend the United States into bankruptcy. He has a very elaborate sort of idea of, of numbers and, and statistics. Uh, but anyway, the point of it is that he, what he wants to do is provoke excessive overreaction. He's also very big on fear. And shortly after 9-11, he gloated that America's full of fear from north to south to east to west. Thank God for that. So basically, the fear and overreaction in many respects are what terrorists hope to cause. And by becoming too fearful and by overreacting, I think we basically play into their hands. Um, this even is the case for 9-11. Now, 9-11 was the most costly terrorist event by far in history. But the costs of reaction to 9-11 were greater uh, than even the death and destruction and economic costs uh, of 9-11. For example, in terms of economic costs, the 9-11 attackers caused an incredibly high uh, cost of maybe $40 billion. But the Department of Homeland Security's budget for a single year is that big. Uh, the 9-11, of course, has made politically possible a couple of wars in Asia, which are going to cost in the trillions of dollars. Uh, and huge expenditures by local governments, by the military, by all kinds of other people to try to deal with it vastly outpace anything the terrorists did on 9-11. Even in the case of human costs after that tragic day, more Americans have died in reaction to 9-11 than died on 9-11. Uh, two statistics. One is that uh, one study uh, um, indicates that uh, the number of Americans who died between 9-11-2001 and the end of that year was over 1,000. 
These are Americans who died because they drove out of fear rather than flying in safe airplanes. Uh, in addition, the wars obviously in Iraq alone, uh, which were made, was made politically possible by 9-11, has killed far more Americans, military and civilian, than died on 9-11. There are also very substantial opportunity costs. Um, the, uh, the FBI, for example, has moved much of its apparatus into going after terrorists and found very few of them. Of them. I'll talk more about that later. Um, and has moved away from crime, uh, which is such that the number of people being convicted or indicted by the FBI over criminal matters seems to have been cut in half over that period of time. Uh, there's other opportunity costs uh, that just sort of come out of just sort of inconvenience. Uh, there's a number of calculations. Is if, you're, if you're required to wait an additional half hour at the airport, how much does that cost the economy over the course of a year? And the number comes out to be something like 8 to $15 billion by various estimates. Um, so there's a, there's a whole set of costs that, that come from this reaction. Um, the, the third point, basically, therefore, is to move toward, more toward policy itself. And uh, it seems to me what I'm stressing in the book is that uh, policies designed should, with terrorism should focus more on reducing the fear and anxiety as, as inexpensively as possible, uh, as much as they do on reducing the rather limited dangers terrorism is likely actually to pose. In other words, the, 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 what we want to do is try to control the fear, try to control the reaction or overreaction, which are often more costly than when terrorism uh, uh, suffers. Um, for example, uh, we have here a statement from the Department of Homeland Security, the first page of their defining manifesto, uh, which basically in invokes fear. Uh, today's terrorists can strike at any place at any time with virtually any weapon. Now, if the next statement in that state, in that word, to say, but your chances of being killed are very, very small, then I might, you know, go along with it. But the second statement basically uh, never seems to come forward. Um, uh, this is a statement from uh, Charles Gibson uh, in the fifth anniversary ABC program. He said, now putting your child on a school bus or driving across a bridge is just, or just going to the mall, each of those things is a small act of courage uh, and peril is a part of everyday life. So now I know why I stay out of malls. They're just chock full of heroes, you know. Um, um, so, but this is, a, this is a constant kind of statement, which is basically invoking fear. Uh, and fear, as I tried to indicate, has both economic and even human uh, costs. Um, uh, one of the policies that's been main, main, maintained is basically the quest for targets. Uh, and it seems to me this is a very questionable use of, of, uh, of uh, resources. Um, the, uh, uh, early on, the Department of Homeland Security was demanded, I think by Congress, to come up with a list of probable targets in the United States uh, for terrorists. Um, now, since there's basically an infinite number of targets in the United States, including this room, um, the, uh, uh, this strikes me as being an exercise in, and to a degree of futility. But after a couple of years, they come up with 30,000 targets in the United States. Uh, Tom Ridge, who was head director at that time, thought that was quite a bit, but he was premature but because within a couple of years, even within one year, uh, there are now 80,000 supposed targets in the United States, not one or 12 or 500, but 80,000. My favorite of these is Wikiwachi Springs, um, which is a theme park, a water park in Florida, um, and it has mermaids in it, as you can see. Um, and uh, as, uh, the Florida newspaper uh, asked the, the uh, marketing director about this and had an article a couple of years ago. It said, he said, I can't imagine bin Laden trying to blow up the mermaids, uh, but with terrorists, who knows what they're thinking? 
and then and then getting started, you know, the, you know moving toward the worst case scenario. I, do, I don't want to think like a terrorist, but what they tried to poison the water uh, at Wikiwachi Springs. Uh, extraordinarily difficult task uh, in any event. However, he quickly moved to the next level, which he's indicated that he was now working to get some of the money uh, that, the, uh, that, that the federal counterterrorism funding that has been allocated uh, to the Tampa Bay region by the Department of Homeland Security. So what you get basically is sort of money being thrown at a problem uh, by the government, uh, sometimes sensibly, m- much of the time I think un- not very sensibly, and the result of that has been a, um, uh, uh, a, a misdirected expenditures in many respects. But you've got to, you know, this, you've got to give Athens some credit here. Basically, if they're going to throw away money, they might as well throw some of it at me. Uh, so if you've got X-ray machines that you're selling and you, want, you find out the Department of Homeland Security wants to X-ray everything from here to, kin- to kingdom come, uh, you're in Washington very quickly. Um, and Washington, by the way, has benefited enormously from this. One calcul- So you probably don't want to hear the rest of this. Uh, but uh, since 9-11, one calculation by economists at George Mason University is that you would have expected about $5 billion worth of money, federal money, to be dumped basically in the Washington, D.C. area. Instead, because of 9-11, it's more like 14 or 15 billion. Uh, two of the richest counties, uh, the, the two richest large counties in the United States are now in the, uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. So if you bought a house a few years ago, very good idea. Um, okay, um, the, uh, the basically, oh, excuse me, the, uh, the, the, uh, there's just an infinite number of targets, and if you reduce that to somewhat less infinite number, you still are left with infinite number. And this is just a list of all the, just some of the stuff. I don't even list the number of McDonald's on there. Um, okay, the, um, uh, uh, let me just give you a quick outline of sort of policy. It seems to me it's reasonable. One of these is a certain amount of policing to get the terrorists, particularly international policing, where it seems to have been comparatively successful. Another would be to try to deal with the nuclear weapons issue. I think the possibility of nuclear weapons being acquired by by terrorists are incredibly small, but I wouldn't mind that at all if it's even smaller. Uh, be, not because of the probabilities are very high, but because obviously a huge amount of damage could be done should that actually happen. Beyond that, my policies are mostly trying to deal with fear and overreaction. Uh, one of these would be basically stress that, that uh, you, can, you can absorb, and it's a very horrible word, but in many respects, but basically we absorb 40,000 deaths every year from automobile accidents. The number of people likely to be killed in the United States by terrorists is likely to be very small. Uh, that's it, the best number, obviously, is the number that actually have been killed since 9-11, namely zero. But if, if, if people should be prepared. If it go, something happens, some people may die, uh, and that's tragic, and we should try to repair the damage and so forth and compensate the victims, uh, but it's far from an existential or massive threat to the United States. There should be some effort to coordinate with that to try to put the risk in some degree of context. I'll talk a little bit about, about that in a more. Basically trying to, you know, just explain uh, your chance of being very, very are killed are very small. Uh, but almost nobody says that uh, except for Michael Moore, it looks like. Um, the, uh, we should possibly explore security theater, things that make people safer, feel safer, even if it doesn't necessarily. It may make sense to spend a fair amount of money on airline security because people are really worried about that, whereas they aren't, don't seem to be worried about bus security or uh, uh, being on a, a train, despite what happened in Madrid and London. Uh, and so efforts, it may be, the expenditure should partially be done in the sense of trying to reduce fears because those are consequential. There can also be efforts to reduce costs. Do we really need a billion dollars a year practically being spent on air marshals who are designed to prevent another 9-11, somebody hijacking and controlling and commandeering an airliner? 
something that's probably impossible given what happened on the fourth plane on 9-11 that the passengers and crew won't allow it to happen. Anyway, there's a lot of places where I think uh, costs could be substantially reduced. Um, remembering false alarms may be uh, useful to try to reduce fear. Uh, uh, some effort to reduce safety standards uh, in terms of, like, radiation damage. Uh, the, the standards now are incredibly conservative, uh, and that may be bad in case if some radiological weapon actually went off, very co unnecessarily costly. And also efforts to reduce policy overreaction. And let me say just a bit about that. Uh, some people say that after 9-11 you have to do something big. Well, that's probably true. You have to do something at least. But the two worst attacks in American history on, on, before 9-11, terrorist attacks, uh, basically were, were sort of accepted in, in stride. Uh, one was in 1983 uh, when uh, 280 Americans were killed in Lebanon uh, by a, a terrorist bomb under the Reagan administration. And Reagan basically pulled the troops out, said, I'd like to bomb somebody, but I can't figure out who to bomb. Uh, people basically accepted it, and he was reelected in 1984 with the issue not even coming up. Uh, the other attack was Lockerbie, Scotland, uh, downing of an airliner coming back from London, including two of the students in the university I, I used to teach at. Uh, over 200 people were killed. And again, the, the effort was made to go after the guys who did it, uh, which ultimately seems to have been successful. But that was also politically successful. So it doesn't follow that you have to do dramatic things like bombing somebody or starting a war, necessarily. Um, this is one effort, a very rare one. This is by John McCain, an actual politician. And this, I can't find any, there may be other politicians that said something like this, but this is buried in a book he did a couple of years ago. Get on the damn elevator, fly into plane, calculate the odds of being killed by a terrorist. It's still about as likely as being swept out to sea by a tidal wave. Suck it up for crying out loud. You're almost certainly going to be okay in an unlikely event you want to spend the rest of your life hiding behind duct tape and plastic sheeting. Um, it seems to me messages like that probably would resonate in many respects. At least people ought to try from time to time. Uh, you notice, however, there's this little place in the middle with ellipses where I cut out something, which is watch the terrorist threat and go outside whenever it falls again below yellow. Um, well, it will never fall below yellow. So the implication of what McCain is saying is that you should stay in your apartment for the rest of your life. Um, so, so I, I have, have this problem. Anyway, I emailed uh, McCain in 2004 asking about this anomaly, and I'm still waiting for the response. Uh, but, but, but it does say, I mean, you, even politicians can possibly say this. Okay. Um, uh, the final point, um, despite U.S. overreaction, the campaign, I much prefer that word to, ter to war, against terror is generally going rather well. Um, let me give you a quote here from uh, Stephen Flynn, uh, who's one of, who writes a lot about terrorism, was very concerned about container security and things like that. And he opened an article in the Foreign Affairs a couple of years ago with this statement. The United States is living on borrowed time and squandering it. And at the end, he said, uh, the entire nation must be organized for the long, deadly struggle against terrorism. In the middle, however, he had this statement. How much security is enough when American people can conclude that a future attack on U.S. soil will be an exceptional event that does not require wholesale changes in how they go about their lives? It seems to me we got it. Um, by that standard, we're basically uh, very secure. Um, Okay, let me look at the, the, the threat um, uh, that, that uh, al-Qaeda seems to pose and, put a, and also tr uh, conclude by sort of figuring out why there hasn't been an attack for five years in the United States. Um, this is a statement by Robert Mueller, uh, head of the FBI, director of the FBI in 2003, which I call, I think, therefore they are. 
Um, um, and he says the greatest threat uh, in 2003 from al-Qaeda cells that we have not yet identified. Uh, so we have this big threat from something we don't know that it exists. He says that the threat is uh, – and the ability, it has the ability and the intent to inflict uh, uh, significant casualties in the United States without, with little warning. He says that threat is increasing for some reason. I don't quite get the connection here, but because of the D.C. bomber uh, sniper shootings, which had nothing to do with al-Qaeda or anything, and, uh, uh, and, and other things, um, and the anthrax letter attacks. And then he also said at the time al-Qaeda has developed a, uh, a, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the infrastructure, support infrastructure, and, and, and uh, has a network within the United States, even though he hasn't been able to find it. Uh, 2005, he came back before the same committee, and his main comment at that time, which is bolded in the FBI transcript, is, I remain very concerned about what we are not seeing. Um, and uh, he may be right, of course, and that's it's certainly a reasonable concern, uh, but it does give one uh, pause. Interestingly, at the very time he was making this statement, the FBI had come out with a secret report, which, as far as I know, is still secret, in which they've been unable to identify a single true al-Qaeda sleeper cell anywhere in the country. Uh, there are bad guys out there, and they've captured some people. Most of them are, seem to be somewhat flaky, like trying to you know, uh, take down the Brooklyn Bridge with an acetylene torch. After working on that for several hours, even New Yorkers have probably noticed there's somebody trying to do something there on the bridge. Um, the, uh, so, and and there's, there, there's some of these guys are probably really good to have locked up because they are probably dangerous, though probably more dangerous to themselves than to other people. We'll have to see about that. Um, so uh, anyway, um, the um, uh, let me skip past that because I'm running out of time. But there, this is a, uh, uh, Ashcroft's warning in 2004 that another attack was around the corner, 90 percent complete, which of course didn't happen. At any rate, the the absence of <coughs> the absence of attacks since 9/11 seem, would seem to suggest one of three things have to be the case. Uh, one is. <coughs> that the FBI is amazingly incompetent. Um, and I, I'm inclined to, um, I mean, sort of like to believe that, I suppose, and deep down inside. Uh, but um, I think that's probably not the case because policing agencies who are not nearly as competent as the FBI have been able to roll up a fair number of people in places like Indonesia, Pakistan, uh, Saudi Arabia, and so forth. So it, it seems to be unlikely that they simply, the FBI just can't do it, can't, can't do it. The other possibility is that the terrorists are amazingly clever. They've got a whole bunch of people here, and they've been able to avoid detection. They're just hanging in there waiting for something. Uh, but if they are here, why don't they do something? Um, the, uh, the, uh, you know, it isn't as if they lack for provocation. For example, the attack on Iraq, it would seem to be a, a case in point. And the third possibility uh, is maybe they don't exist. Uh, it's something we'll just have to, you know, I can't be sure about that, but it's one that one ought to potentially explore. Uh, let's look at uh, the question of why, uh, the, sort of what's happened since 9-11. Uh, the best evidence, as far as I'm able to see, and there may be other people who are better at this than I here, by far, um, is that the number of terrorists, al-Qaeda terrorists, real hardcore types, that were in the United States on, before 9-11 was 19, uh, plus one guy, uh, this uh, nutcase, um, who was, uh, uh, who was, who was uh, uh, arrested before that. Uh, and it doesn't seem to, they didn't have much support from anybody because there wasn't anybody to support them, at least as far as I can see. Um, there's also the 9-11 effect, which really turned off a large number of people throughout the world in, in all countries, uh, that um, including, as uh, Fawaz Georges points out in his book, uh, The Far Enemy, including violent jihadists. They thought it was immoral and stupid 
uh, to have this 9-11 effect. Al-Qaeda is a fringe group of a fringe group, and many of the other people in the fr- other fringe groups uh, didn't approve of it, thought it was stupid. Um, there's also been a large amount of arresting because of 9-11 overseas, uh, in the, the place I mentioned before. Uh, and so hundreds of people have been rounded up in various ways. Um, there's also uh, the reaction to post-9-11 terrorism. Um, what has happened is there has been sporadic uh, 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 terrorism since 9-11 outside of – I mean, a big time, obviously, and if you want to call that, call it terrorism within Iraq. But other places uh, like Bali and uh, Spain and uh, Egypt and, and Morocco um, and Turkey. Uh, but uh, the, these reactions have been incredibly negative. The best case from my standpoint is the b- bombing of a hotel wedding in, in Jordan. Uh, if you put to, the terrorists put together a public relations firm and said, what's the, what's the best target to attack if we want to decrease our support? Well, how about a hotel wedding? Um, and basically what happened in Jordan was people, you know, just the whole imagery of it and so forth. Some guy jumping on in a wedding where everybody's happy, preparing for it for months, and then some idiot comes in and blows up the wedding by jumping on a table and pulling off, a, exploding a bomb, killing in that case only Palestinians and, and Jordanians. Uh, the reaction was incredibly negative. Uh, uh, before that, about 25 percent of Jordanians and Poles uh, expressed support for bin Laden. After that, it went down to less than 1 percent. Uh, and that's the case also in, in Indonesia and other places. So you've had this counter-reaction by governments overseas. Okay, oh, I'm going to make it. Um, the, uh, uh, and then uh, there's also the case of Afghanistan, uh, potentially, uh, that the, uh, uh, that the, the, the rolling up within Afghanistan. It's not quite clear to me that that, that was necessary, but that also has had an effect. Uh, the, the, if there's a couple of uh, um, journals, a couple of books that have come out in the last year or so detailing of the uh, uh, people who have been killed by al-Qaeda types, al-Qaeda wannabes, al-Qaeda whatever, since 9-11 throughout the world. Muslim extremists, they're sort of associated with it. Um, And if you look through the uh, outside of war zones like Iraq, if you look at this number, it comes out to be maybe 1,000 plus or minus since 9-11. In other words, about 200 a year. Uh, not, you know, the best number obviously is zero, but 200 a year is not exactly a monumental number. It's smaller than the number who die drowning in bathtubs in the United States in a single year. To get that to zero would be very desirable, but this certainly doesn't suggest we're up against a monumental threat uh, unless there's a massive change in their capacities. Okay, finally, then the question, why the other explanations why there's nothing happened since 9-11 uh, one is American security has so been so incredibly good. Uh, this is the American security who gave us the response to Hurricane Katrina. Um, and, um, you know, it doesn't it, – it, uh, basically, I think security has gotten better. Uh, but the idea that they can't get five people in or ten people in over uh, five years strikes me as being very strange. Uh, there are over 300 million foreigners come to this country every day – I mean, every year – I mean, that's more than there are people in this country. These, uh, and, and they're being screened and so forth, but the idea that security has been perfect is very strange. Uh, similarly, uh, there's been, of course, thousands of people who come across the border uh, illegally. Uh, the argument, if you want to get stuff in, of course, you want to get a weapon of mass destruction in the United States, as people have pointed out. What you want to do is put it inside a bale of marijuana. Uh, there's a huge amount of uh, material coming in. Uh, the argument is that Afghanistan uh, disrupted them. I think there's something to that, but uh, there's been obviously terrorism in very places in the world, like like Bali, like Madrid, like London, uh, even when Iraq was going on. So, it, I mean, Afghanistan, even after the Afghanistan disruption, uh, that also holds for the, the argument that everybody's tied up in Iraq. Maybe a lot of them are, but you don't need very many to create terrorism in the United States. There's also the argument that the American Muslim community is inhospitable. 
And I think that's true. But the 9-11 hijackers basically hardly use the Muslim community at all. In fact, if you are a terrorist in the United States, you probably want to stay away from the Muslim community because that's the lamppost under which the FBI is most assiduously looking for its lost keys. So consequently, um, uh, they, they, they are basically the wrong place to be. You know, somebody should do a study, by the way, about intimidation of Muslims. There's some argument that American Muslims are being uncooperative because they're afraid if they say anything, they're going to be, you know, prosecuted. There is a, there, a federal prosecutor has been asked, um, uh, it, suppose, according to present law, uh, suppose there's a little old lady in, in Switzerland who gives money to a charity for Afghan uh, children's relief, but some of the money goes to al-Qaeda. Can that woman, and she doesn't know it, of course, uh, can that woman be arrested uh, as, an enemy as an enemy combatant? And the answer, yes. So consequently, if you give them to a Muslim charity, you probably don't want to talk too much to the FBI or anybody else because of the danger that could come back to bite you. Uh, the last argument is basically it takes a lot of patience. Um, and it takes a lot of time. They have to basically, basically figure out uh, what's, uh, what's happening. Uh, it takes a long time to plan that. But the Madrid bombings only took six months from beginning to end. Um, and the 9-11 uh, the attack only took about two years. So maybe they're very patient and so forth in putting a big thing together. Uh, but they certainly had a long time to do it. Okay, that's some of the arguments in the book. Thanks for your attention. Well, John's, uh, John's presentation is nothing if not an invitation to discussion. So let's hear from Governor Gilmore now, uh, his thoughts about the book and this, and this presentation. Okay. Governor Gilmore. I'll try to remain as, uh, as brief as I can so that you've got uh, a little time. Uh, usually I could, I could talk for hours about this, uh, so I'll, I'll try to be as, as brief as I can. John, congratulations on your work and on your book, which I, I certainly recommend to, to everyone. Uh, I think everybody ought to read a book written by a professor who holds the chair of a football player who teaches dance. Uh, I could use some of those dance lessons, as a matter of fact. So, uh, And also, uh, I believe that he's right, that uh, certainly if we're going to be protecting, uh, we need to refer at least to the Department of the Interior if we're going to protect the endangered species that are, are mermaids down at the water park in, in Florida. Let me just say a few words, if I could. I'm here uh, to, to comment on this book and, uh, and to congratulate John um, uh, Mueller for this, uh, this, this wonderful study. I can't say I agree with everything in the book. You wouldn't expect that, I suppose. There are 200 pages of closely thought through uh, issues and points of view uh, in this book, much of which is right and some of which I, I would uh, choose to, to disagree. But this book adds a great deal uh, to the uh, analysis and thinking about terrorism in the world today and specifically in the United States, and I certainly would recommend that it be read. It's also fun because it's countercultural. Uh, it uh, goes against the grain. It goes against the conventional wisdom in the United States and therefore causes people to, to think. So I strongly recommend it. Why am I before you today? Because I chaired the official commission on terrorism and homeland security for the United States Congress. Uh, I was appointed to that commission back in 1999 when I was governor of the state of Virginia. I was asked to chair the commission, which was made up of police, fire, rescue, emergency services, health care providers, real people that would have to deal with the issue of the preparation of the United States. You will recall in 1999 there was zero discussion of this topic. That's not what was on the mind of the United States at the time. Congress, however, was very edgy about this. 
and they probably should have been, so they, they set up this uh, commission. It, turned, it was a three-year commission. The first year we assessed the threat, and we concluded that the chance of a true weapon of mass destruction attack on the United States was not particularly likely for the reasons that John has laid down. But we also did say that the chance of a conventional attack in the United States, the explosion of a bomb, a kidnapping, a hijack of a plane or a train, was highly probable inside the homeland of the United States. In the second year, we uh, assessed how a national strategy could be developed. We reported that there was not one, that one was needed, that it had to be a national strategy of federal, state, local, private sector, community leadership and that there needed to be some sense of, of who was in charge and how to deal with these issues. In the third and last year of our commission, we recommended five key areas, state and local responders and how you, how you fit them in, public health and whether we were ready for a bio-potential attack or even a natural occurring pandemic, the issue of cybersecurity, the issue of border control, and the fact that the borders were very porous and therefore created a terrorist danger, and then finally, how you use the military in the homeland, if at all. And we were concluded, and we sent our report to the printer first week of September 2001. And, of course, the attack occurred within days after we bustled it off to the, to the printer. The commission went on for two additional years. We dealt with the issue of security and intelligence issues. The director of the FBI came before our commission numerous times. At the end of that uh, discussion after a year's debate, uh, we concluded that the FBI – the, I was actually an FBI advocate. I believe that the FBI should be forced to do the job correctly. The commission rejected it and said the FBI could probably never do this job. That debate goes on uh, to this day. And then in the last year of the report, uh, 2003, because the commission was extended two additional years, uh, we concluded that uh, more urgency was needed in the area, but that there was a danger that we would, in fact, overreact and uh, – mitigate the civil freedoms of the people of the United States. And we had to be very worrisome about those, those issues. Uh, I, I tell you today that, uh, that we, we have to pay attention to this. Uh, I'm going to change emphasis a little bit for just a minute or two and then return to a third topic and then I'll be done. On the, uh, the issue of terrorist attacks in the United States, I, I do agree that there needs to be a sense of perspective on this. Uh, it would not do to ignore the actual possibility, all evidence uh, to the contrary. It would not do to, to ignore this danger and the potential of it in the United States. The perspective of it is lacking in the American debate today. John adds that perspective in his book, and I think that's very valuable. But don't kid yourself here. Uh, we are, if not in a war of terrorism, we're in a war, to get a war against terrorists people who would use terrorist tactics in order to influence the United States in terms of its economy and its foreign policy, and that is true, and it cannot be minimized. And why should we minimize it? We saw the attack on the World Trade Center. Uh, we saw the attack on Cobar Towers. We saw the attack on the coal. We saw the attack on Oklahoma City, which was very devastating, even though it wasn't al-Qaeda, to the best of our knowledge. And we saw the attack, of course, on the World Trade Center and on the Pentagon. And I was governor of the state of Virginia during the attack on the Pentagon and dealt with that issue out of the governor's office uh, at the same time that, uh, that everything else was going on in New York. There's a very real possibility that if uh, enemies of this country that wish to influence this country want to make another demonstration in this country, 
if they want to carry on a military operation, they can probably get into this country and they can probably do another attack. It would probably be a conventional attack, a bomb, a hijacking, a train. We've already seen it, haven't we, in Madrid? We've seen it in London. So I'm not one who can discount this, and I believe the American people expect their government officials to pay attention to it and to take appropriate steps. This is not to say, however, that the book is wrong in, in all of its, uh, in, in its, in its aspects. We have to have some sense of proportion here. The enemy would like to create fear in the United States, fear that causes us to overreact, fear that causes us to diminish our civil freedoms, fear that causes us to enter into unwise foreign policy commitments or initiatives that, in fact, in the end, do severe damage to, uh, to this nation. And uh, fear comes from the unknowable, uh, uh, from misestimating what the damage might be uh, by overblowing the potential threat. We have a duty to actually understand what the threat is and to take that into consideration instead of imagining things that, uh, that are, are unlikely or even if, in fact, they do occur. Uh, what is their perspective? What is their proportion? What is their impact on this republic and the freedoms of this republic? And that is the great contribution, in my view, of, the, of this book, Overblown, and why I would certainly encourage everyone to read it. There are many elements in this free society that work against us in this war against terrorists. I, I, I actually dreamed this up this morning. I've, I've decided to start talking about war on terrorists now as opposed to war on terror. Uh, we've seen terror down through the eons of mankind. We are specifically dealing here with real people who are terrorists. We have to understand them and what they are, uh, in fact, uh, doing. Uh, politicians, uh, and by the way, I am one. I'm a recovering politician, but I may fall off the wagon again here soon. You never know. But um, politicians who are responsive to the people in a true republic or democracy uh, we, we have to be very cautious about this. There is an expectation from the American people that we will do all that is reasonable to keep them secure. There is. So people do respond to that. Uh, and as a result, there's no percentages in ignoring this or pre pretending that it is not significant. Because if the enemy gets in here and sets off a bomb and kills people, um, the politicians don't want to be blamed for that. That is the reality of the world that we, uh, that we live in. And as a result of that, you see a lot of flamboyant language and a lot of reaction and a lot of money that I think is appropriately addressed in this book in terms of a, a sense of perspective as to whether it is all necessary or whether we're wasting it or whether it is, in fact, appropriately uh, placed against this uh, war on uh, terror. There are a lot of reckless comments that are made in the government and in the media. You know, folks, we live in an entertainment society. This is an entertainment society we're living in. News is now 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's multiple resources. These are advantages to the American people. They now have an, a menu of information that they never had before in the old days. But there is a competition within the, within the news industry now for entertainment. You've got to keep people tuning in. You've got to keep people looking at your network. So as a result, there's every incentive in the world uh, to, uh, to be flamboyant and exaggerating. Uh, which then has dangerous policy implications uh, for the country as, as we go forward to do these things. The duty, in my view, is still at the end of the day on the public. Uh, this war against terrorists creates an opportunity now for public virtue that we have not seen for a long time. Really, the duty 
at the end of the day, is not really the government's duty or even the press's duty. They have their own incentives and pressures in this war against terrorists. It's the duty of the people of the United States to educate themselves and to make judgments on their own as to the merit, value, weight, and significance of the war on terror and what has uh, to be done. So our duty, I think, as citizens is to think about these issues. And finally, I, I end and conclude, and not bad in terms of my time, I think, <laughs> by saying several things. Uh, we have to care, of course, about people. Our duty is to care about the citizenry of the United States as opinion leaders, politicians, thinkers, and authors. Uh, our duty is to remember the people that we represent and that, uh, frankly, look to us uh, for, for leadership. But part of that is, without any question, preserving the freedoms and liberties of the American people. Uh, there is a sense today of trade-off. If we're going to give, I think the introduction almost involuntarily, I think, was, well, if we're going to if we're going to give up our privacies or our freedoms in return for more security, we ought to understand what the true nature of the threat is. That is an accurate statement. As a matter of policy, I believe the challenge of statesmanship is to keep the American people uh, secure and free, and to not do a trade-off. We have come too far to be trading off our freedoms of the people of the United States at this point. It is accurate that we must have a clearer transparency and picture of what the real threat is. And we don't see that much. We don't see that much. I thought it was a very compelling slide where he said that a secret report of the FBI said we just haven't identified any cells of al-Qaeda. It doesn't mean there aren't dangers here, folks. I just gave you some examples of true dangers that actually exist that we must address. But I think we have a, a, a right, some transparency here, to understand exactly what the nature of the threat is, and we should be reaching for it each and every day. Oh, yes, security people will say, well, gee, if we tell you the truth, then the enemy will hear it. They really they, they think that. That's, that's really true. They will hear it, by the way. But the fact is that there is a greater good here, and that is the opportunity to educate and inform the American people who are the citizens that we stand to speak for. Because at the end of the day, they can't exercise public virtue unless they have evidence and facts and information. So we ought to know what is the nature of the real threat. Then we can better calibrate it and better measure it. But at the end of the day... We should not trade off the freedoms of the people of the United States in return for security. We should instead tell the people of the United States the truth, the nature of the actual threat. I agree that the enemy cannot bring down this republic or injure any of our liberties that we have fought for all through our days. Only we can do that to ourselves. We have a duty to understand what all of this is, and we have a duty to remember that great founding father, Benjamin Franklin, who warned us at the beginning of this uh, of this of this great experiment that we have as Americans that they who would sacrifice a liberty in return for security are entitled to neither freedom nor security. Thank you very much for the chance to be with you. As I knew we would, we got some very important perspective, I think, from, from Governor Gilmore. Before I turn it over to you for some audience Q&A. Let me prime the pump with a, with a question of my own that's, uh, uh, that I've struggled with for some time and talked with people about for, for some time now, and that's the, the issue of security theater. Security theater is, is the idea that perhaps the government should do things to make people feel safe even though the things don't actually make them any more safe. I think a good example of security theater, based on my study 
of identity-based security is that the margin of security created by checking people's ID cards uh, at the airport is not very good, not, not very significant compared to the cost and imposition uh, in terms of both dollars and time and also uh, privacy and civil liberties. So, so I still struggle with, with that question. Is, it, is, it, is government's role to make pe- people feel safe without necessarily making them more safe? Is that appropriate? Or should government insist on walking the public through the, the arguments that John Mueller makes to us that you are safe? And you don't need the uh, the exercises that we're putting you through. What are what are your thoughts on those? Let me just uh, add a little bit on that. Uh, security theater. I mean, basically, almost anything can reduce increase your security a little bit. I suppose so. It's not a matter of lying, but it, as I mentioned in the talk, uh, there's a tendency to of, people are much more afraid of flying than they are of, of driving in buses or in in in, in, uh, in taxi cabs or automobiles. Uh, so there may be some effort. It may make sense to ex- expend peculiar um, uh, funds on making sure they're they're con- they're confident uh, when they fly. But what we should also do is try to figure out how we can do that less 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 expensively. Do we really need all those TSA you know Keystone cops uh, running around? You have to show your boarding pass twice. Do you really have to take off your shoes? If people take off their shoes, do they really feel more comfortable or not? So various experiments can be done on that. And let me just add one thing. A study is made at the University of Florida recently, a preliminary study, which suggests sort of the, 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 the idea of security theater and how it can work in different directions depending on what you're trying to secure. Um, the, the question is about visible security measures. So to simplify it, basically, if you see a cop standing, you know, an armed cop walking down the street and so forth, uh, what happens is that when people see that, they tend, or when they're going into a bank or something, uh, when they see the cop, they tend to be less fearful of crime. So the police officer, the visible security theater of this guy walking around uh, makes them more, uh, less afraid of crime. And that's basically probably a really good thing. The study also found, however, if you see the cop walk, standing at a subway stop, for example, and you think he's there to protect you against terrorists, you become more afraid of terrorism. So the very same security idea basically has a, has a different effect in different ways. Uh, let me, while I have the floor here, add one thing to sort of amplify to a degree what, uh, what uh, Governor Gilmore was saying uh, about uh, not giving up our freedoms. Uh, uh, you can find many statements of the following. Uh, that uh, the, uh, the one I want to supply for you is something said on television by General Richard Myers when he was then chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And he said what the terrorists are trying to do is do away with our way of life. Um, I'm not sure that's what they want. I think I mean they just want us in the Middle East. But anyway, that's what he said. So in, 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 in uh, 9-11, they killed 3,000 people. That wasn't enough to do it. But if they were able to kill 10,000 people, that would do it. Um, now, the only way terrorists could do away with our way of life, whatever that means, would be if we did it to ourselves. The terrorists can't possibly do away with our way of life. I mean, they can't tear up the Constitution. They can't close down churches. They can't close down newspapers. They can't stop us from eating hamburgers. They can't force us to start learning North Korean, whatever, whatever would be uh, the thing would be doing away with our way of life. So in many respects, as underlying what G- uh, Governor Gilmore said, is the fear, the problem is that uh, the enemy in many respects is us. That if we overreact and basically punish ourselves and restrict ourselves, we're very much doing the terrorist dirty work for them and doing something that they themselves can't possibly do. Well, well I agree that the, that the enemy is fear, and the whole goal of terrorism is to inject fear in order to get uh, a, a reaction. Uh, they certainly have altered our way of life to a very large extent. 
And, but I think we can get back to, to uh, uh, the kind of way of life that we ought to have. I don't think we should do away with all security efforts. I think the American people would not expect that. Uh, but I do believe that uh, we can recapture a sense of optimism and confidence and uh, a sense of perspective. And I believe, once again, that John's book is designed to try to inject a sense of perspective, which I congratulate you on, John. I think that's uh, uh, very thoughtful. Uh, by the way, they took my shaving cream the other day at LaGuardia Airport. It really, really makes me mad. I was very attached to that shaving cream. And... Um, uh, they couldn't get it in the little bag, you know, so they insisted on taking it. Um, the uh, the fact is that uh, if if someone wants to make a demonstration and to prove that we are vulnerable, they, and they want to conduct a secret military operation the way they did in 9/11, they can probably get in here and blow up a bus. Uh, and then, of course, the media entertainment society takes over, and everybody from here to Seattle will know about that bus. Uh, in fact, they'll probably ground all the buses for a few days until they check them all out and all that kind of thing. So the, the consequences of that kind of thing are significant. It is also true that uh, criminal activity occurs in this country every day. There's somehow something qualitatively different between someone who commits a crime for their own benefit, whatever that, uh, that uh, mental benefit might be, as opposed to an enemy who wishes to inflict something on us. Somehow it's qualitatively different. And probably ought to be, and we should. A government has a different obligation, even though they are quantitatively the same thing. So I'm not sure I would necessarily agree that that those things are uh, analogous. Uh, but uh, don't uh, ignore the fact that uh, you know we, we we still have the issue of of theater. Why is it done? A lot of it's to cover. Because if, in fact, the enemy does get in here and blow up that bus, instead of arguing its perspective, as John would urge us to do in the book there would be a sense of making sure they don't get blamed. Uh, so as a result, you see a lot of, act, uh, a lot of activity because you're, you, you want to show the American people you're doing the best you can, even though it may not be uh, effective. Uh, and, you know, one might argue there may even be a little bit of a deterrence effect that the enemy might not choose to do certain things because they know we're watching. doesn't stop them from doing something else, though. We have just a little bit of time, so let's do a sort of lightning round with short questions and short, short answers. <laughs> Sir? Um, one of the things that happened here in Washington was the uh, sniper. And if you bought a white van, you got stopped. I'll take that as an example. Um, and and I, saw an awful, I saw an awful lot of I saw a few Mexican gardeners having to identify themselves and go through that whole process. And this this was just two guys with guns. Yeah, they, 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 that kind of overreaction is, is appalling, and it's, it's having a big effect, I think, on many people in the Muslim community in the, this country now. Um, the, uh, one, one case in point might be also the, you know, the airports are still on orange alert. Uh, as opposed to yellow alert. This is from the attack, the, 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 the plot they broke up in August in London. Uh, London's on the other side of the ocean. Uh, and still airports are now on orange alert. Uh, orange alert for the Los Angeles airport costs about $100,000 a day in, extra, in, in security costs. Uh, there are 5,000 airports in the United States, quite a few of them on the LAX scale. 
And so what's happening is uh, for basically what Governor Gilmer is talking about, CYA, I believe, is the way it's expressed in Washington, um, that we're basically uh, having this incredible expenditure of money for something which uh, – a threat which is basically uh, in a, on a different continent. Uh, and so it, it, it seems to me that a huge number of security measures should be looked at in that light as to how much we're spending on them and how much we're wasting on them. Sir? Um, if uh, patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel, surely national security is the first refuge of the scoundrel. <laughs> Especially that scoundrel comes to the GOP, the American Enterprise Institute, and you know what I mean. Um, and uh, seven weeks ago, the biggest twit, upper-class twit since George III, said anybody who votes for Democrats is a terrorist, or rather is voting with a terrorist. In the end, then, who is a terrorist? Who wants to rise to that well, the provocative <laughs> question? We have, a, we have a, a lapsed politician here, so... <laughs> There, there is a huge tendency uh, for politicians, and I, maybe they're right, that basically if they say what I say, they're not going to get elected. You notice they're not running for anything. But there is a CYA problem. And maybe Governor yeah, I have my own personal list of terrorists, which I'll provide to you after the meeting. <laughs> um, I've got them all right here right now. Uh, you know, again, I, I come back to it. National security is an absolute obligation of people who run for office and are elected to office, and if they don't do it, uh, then uh, they should be held accountable. The the emergence of homeland security since the 9-11 attack is very interesting. Again, the Congress was worried enough about it to set up an official commission, which I chaired as early as 1999. Uh, but, uh, you know, now we're dealing with uh, a number of, of key issues that deal with the well-being and freedom of the American people. Uh, foreign policy has always been that issue, keeping us safe within, secure within our borders from from foreign attack. Uh, working the international political situation in a, in a broad and nuanced way to serve the interests of the people of the United States. Domestic policy, particularly taxation and spending policy, which uh, corrodes very much the spending power of individual working people uh, everywhere. These are essential issues of liberty and freedom. That's not often defined that way, but I feel that way. But now, of course, we're into a homeland security as a third part, a third part now. And uh, we have seen that the potential is there. Uh, for attack. I think that uh, if we can keep proper perspective and have some sense of transparency, then we can uh, follow the appropriate strategies and tactics appropriately funded to protect this country and not sacrifice our freedoms and hopefully not sacrifice so much money. But a scattershot of spending everywhere to protect everything and everywhere in a free society is probably not practical, and we probably should communicate that to the American people. Let's do one last, one last question. Gentleman, right back here. Uh, yeah, Nick Perry, Foreign Policy Forum. Those of us in the 80s dealing with counterterrorism, we did reports. It was very clear that uh, overreaction plays into the hands of terrorists. And raise the question, uh, Professor, Professor Mueller, why did the Bush administration overreact? Was it CYA or was it to uh, be uh, sort of a savior to gain political strength and power or was there other reasons? Clearly, they should have known that <clears throat> they were increasing the costs of uh, 9-11 and playing into the hands of uh, al-Qaeda. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't think anybody's insincere. My, my, uh, uh, my concern about the terrorism industry is 
not that if you get rid of a few key people there, everything will fall into place and then you get to get the change of people and then the right people get in and everything's nice. That only, unfortunately, happens in Frank Capra movies. Um, but uh, basically, politicians are acting like politicians, including Bush. Uh, I don't think he's insincere. I think he really is concerned about the threat. Um, and it, but it would be politically unnatural for him to not, not to notice that his approval rating shot up 40 percentage points before and after 9-11. Uh, and that also, and anybody working for his campaign, if he were a Democrat, would be the same thing. Uh, must notice that uh, the, the, the his ratings on, on dealing with terrorism are very are very good, and so there's a natural tendency to, to inflate the threat. Uh, bureaucrats, of course, don't usually come forward and say reduce my budget. Um, and uh, so there, it's, it's, their, it's their idea, basically, if we have more, you know, the, the more people are afraid, the more money to be pumped into into me, uh, into my area. The press. Uh, uh, which I, you know, I hold accountable a lot for this. Basically, never wants to headline something saying things are really pretty safe. You know, no one will buy the newspaper, uh, so they're acting naturally and scare headlines like this. This thing recently about they were going to have a dirty bomb at NFL stadiums and so forth. They jumped all over that when they when the information was basically. I don't think the information even rose up to the level of being a hoax. Uh, so there's a strong tendency to do that. If it leads, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, and people who are trying to get money, like you know, Wiki Watchy Springs guy, they'd be crazy not to try to get the money that's being thrown at these problems. I could be a target. Anybody can be a target. This room can be a target. Let's get some money. Um, and so consequently, everybody's acting. The politicians are acting naturally. The bureaucracy is acting naturally. The press is acting naturally. And the uh, people, you know, the, the, uh, the pork barrel-ears are acting naturally as well. And I think they're all basically fairly sincere. So Frank Capra would have a big problem with this whole issue. There's no solution. Uh, and I'm fairly pessimistic about whether it will change. I hope I'm wrong about that. Uh, but um, uh, I'm trying to uh, present a, p- a different point of view, and maybe it will catch on for at least some people. I'll just add a, a word to that. Um, when you have a, a, a potential for a domestic attack, and if there's a foreign policy reason for an adversary to, to do that, as they did in 9-11, then it must be at least taken into consideration. Uh, politicians are held accountable uh, for uh, responding to the nature of that threat, and they will be judged on how decisively they act. The uh, unanswered part of this is, what is it we're reacting to and what is the true nature of the threat? That is the issue of debate here today and why the book makes a a contribution to to that discussion. There is a a natural tendency, uh, I think, to potentially to inflate the threat out of security, uh, out of – no, out of a a political security, out of making sure that you don't underestimate what might happen. I I think the answer to that is the maximum transparency. The more we can actually know about what the nature of the threat is, the better the public can measure whether politicians are appropriately responding or merely responding to cover themselves. The Cato Institute accepts no support from government uh, or government agencies, so we will not be seeking after Department of Homeland Security funds to protect this auditorium. I'm, I'm proud talk to talk about say. irrational. Thank you. John Mueller's, John Mueller's book, Overblown. Is a fascinating and excellent read. Our, our commentator, Governor Jim Gilmore, has provided wonderful perspective on this important issue. Thank you all for coming today. Please join me in thanking our speakers for their participation. Today.